0: You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. On today's show, I'll be joined by more international and Irish experts who drive our world of business and politics. Well, this week, Boris went for broke on Brexit as the UK government finally bit the bullet and introduced legislation to unilaterally abandon elements of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Does it all add up to a trade war? And if it does, what is it? And what's the timetable? How could it affect your business or your pocket? Author Bernard Marr joins us to talk about his latest book, which has just been named Business Book of the Year for 2022. It's the 25 trends that are redefining organisations. And finally, it's been compared to Watergate. The hearings in the US committee that are examining last year's attack on Congress make the Watergate scandal look like a garden party. I'll be joined by Financial Times journalist Kieran Stacey from Washington to tell us about what's been happening and what does it all say about the state of American democracy. Plus, your chance to win an Apple iPad Air with thanks to the National Apprenticeships Office. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at StockNT. But first up today, I'm joined now by the author of the Business Book of the Year, Bernard Marr. His book is called Business Trends in Practice, the 25 plus trends that are redefining organisations. It's designed to help anyone in business who's trying to stay on top of the changes that are happening all around us or maybe even get a little bit ahead of the curve. Bernard, you're very welcome to News Talk. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Mandy. Now, congratulations on the Business Book of the Year Award. Tell us about the book itself and who exactly you're aiming this book at.
2: So I I work as a futurist, so I help companies understand future trends. And what I found is working with so many different global businesses and, and leadership teams is that they sometimes find it really difficult to keep up with all the trends because our world is changing so rapidly at the moment. So I thought, why? I I seem to have very similar conversations with um, different companies, different leadership teams. So I thought, actually, let's put all of this together into into one book.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean, the book is is quite an expensive (coughs) tome and it deals with a lot of different sectors. But um. The transformation, you just get the sense that the transformation in business is, you know, happening at such a furious rate now. It's hard to keep up with everything. Could you just talk us through maybe the top five absolutes that businesses need to know about in terms of global shifts?
2: Yes. So for for me, a, a really important shift is that businesses need to think about how they're, adding true value and what i mean by this is that they I for me businesses have an obligation to make our world a better place and and as part of this is becoming a more sustainable business addressing one of the biggest challenges we face as humanity is is uh, our changing environment and so putting sustainability really at the core of, of your business is key and increasingly consumers and investors will expect more from companies and they will increasingly vote with their wallets if if companies don't do that and for me another part of this is become it's basically addressing some of the biggest challenges we face as a world and another challenge beyond sustainability is making our world more equal so addressing some of the inequalities we have in terms of healthcare in terms of education and there are huge opportunities for businesses so if businesses really start thinking about how they solve customer problems in the long run and and help to make our world a better place that's a really good starting point.
0: Yes, there's quite a bit of focus on climate and our relationship with the planet in the book. There was one line in it where you said if we if, if we viewed our relationship with the earth as a romance, it would be considered toxic and that the earth could do better than people have people like us live in it. But there is a new awareness and you do get a sense in the book that business is trying to change, is trying to uh, be more sustainable in its practices. but. You know, what's what's difficult is to see if we can, you know, walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Do you think that um there are, you know, there's a real uh, incentive for business to do more in that climate action sustainable space now or do we just tend to really quickly forget? <laughs>
2: Now, for me, what we're seeing is that there's a big trend towards more conscious consumption. So consumers will vote with their feet and their wallet. They will find businesses that are more sustainable, that are more equal, that have a real purpose, and that they that treat the, the world and their stakeholders and their employees in the way they should. And, and those will, the, will be the businesses that thrive. Uh, Another really important aspect is to think of your business as a technology business. Um, We now live in a world where we've never seen more completely transformative technological innovations that are reshaping our businesses. And every business in every sector needs to think of, of themselves as a tech company we now have technology like artificial intelligence. We have smart robots. We have things like blockchain technology and and the metaverse so augmented and virtual reality. and And these are really transforming organisations and offering huge opportunities for companies to to thrive in the future. And and companies that don't address this will simply be left behind.
0: Yes, and Bernard, uh, you know, many people refer to the technological revolution as the fourth industrial revolution. But you say that this industrial revolution is very different to the predecessors why is that
2: so lots of the previous industrial revolutions were driven by one specific technology like like electricity and steam and and computers what we are now seeing is that lots of trends are coming together and they're interacting with each other. We now have this massive explosion in computing power. It gives our mobile phones the ability to to run artificial intelligence. Um, We have super smart robots. We have blockchain technology that is transforming many sectors and getting rid of intermediaries in, in those sectors. And we have a push towards this metaverse, this a new immersive third evolution of the internet, and any one of these would have traditionally triggered a, a new industrial revolution and and what we are now seeing is that all of all of these are coming together and and impacting each other and accelerating each other
0: if you're just tuning in you're listening to news talks taking stock and I'm talking to Bernard Marr about his business book of the year um Bernard, you mentioned there the uh, scale and pace of the technological revolution but of course we as consumers live in that metaverse. Now how are people's attitudes changing um, as we become more I suppose um, driven in our lives by technology as you mentioned the internet of things um, the ubiquitous nature of technology in our lives it's becoming more isn't it uh, embedded in our daily lives.
2: Absolutely and one of the, the key takeaways for me is that everyone needs to be able to keep up with all the technological and business changes that are happening and this is one of the reasons i i wrote this book to put it all together into one book so you can actually understand what is going on because it can be quite difficult and and for me if 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 the one takeaway we all take away from 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 the book and is that we all need to continuously learn and adapt. And the pace of change is only going to accelerate. And the only way we can cope with this is to actually keep continuously learning and adopting and understanding some of these trends so we can react to them. So it doesn't become this world where change is done to us, but where we can actively contribute to it and we feel in the driver's seat and and we can influence the change and actually use all of this amazing technology and all these amazing changes that are happening for the good of of our world and actually use this technology to make our world a better place.
0: And that's where we lose a little bit of control because a lot of social media companies are using algorithms to help us create our own little echo chambers. And that can be a very dangerous thing where we're not listening to or hearing uh, differing views. One of the things that struck me, Bernard, about the book that is really, really helpful is setting out the problems. Um, just just to, to use one area as an example, when we talk about global growth rates and demographics, very often we hear politicians, policymakers and even large business and industry talking about all of the solutions that they have for very problems, but out actually articulating the challenges that lie out there. Can you just take us through some of um, the the big demographic changes that are likely to happen in the next, say, ten years?
2: So, there are going to be massive demographic demographic shifts over the next few few years. Um, we very often have this very blinkered view of the world, where we see the ve- Western countries like the US, like Europe, um, being dominant dominant in in the world and in the economy. This is going to change and we will see massive shifts towards the East. We will see China becoming the most powerful economic country in the world. We will see countries like India rising into um, second or third place. And we see countries like Indonesia and some of the African countries um, rising um we will also see a, a massive shift in in our population uh, towards uh, more older people um we will, so we need to rethink many of the things like we have today pensions how we um entertain people for for much longer how we pay for everything so there are lots of changes going on and also the cultural changes um that that affect the world uh, where
0: yeah and you know. that, that that was another really interesting part of the book where some of the trends are actually contrasting where you have the cultural convergence but um there's a divergence in national policy policies and um, I'm thinking most particularly of um globalization or the winding down of globalization as maybe Countries look inward in a kind of post-pandemic world, and even with the supply chain issues that we're seeing across the globe. Uh, do you think that's a fair point that that we are in a in an era now of deglobalization?
2: The evidence seems to suggest so at the moment. We have, we've seen this with Brexit. We're seeing this with. Some of the policies um what is interesting at the moment is that some of the things that are going on in in the ukraine with russia invading it that seems to have brought together a few countries um, closer than before but as far as managing their own economies managing their own their own supply chains i think lots of countries realize that this has also introduced many more vulnerabilities and and countries are are looking much more inwardly rather than outwardly and and this is something that has been going on for many years so we and this is interesting that we we have to cope with some of these confusing trends where on the one hand side culturally we seem to come closer together at the same time we have more divergence global- globalization to some extent is coming to an end we see more polarization something you've just alluded to when you talked about some of the filter bubbles on, on social media so they are all challenges every business has to has to be aware of and tackle
0: well, Bernard, um, just before I let you go, I haven't in- interviewed a futurist before and you describe yourself as an influencer when it comes to business and tech. What does that actually mean? Yes,
2: yeah, so I, I see this very practical. I, my job is to help businesses and, 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 and leadership teams understand the trends that are coming up, understand the technologies that, that they need to think about and the, the changes that will happen in their industry so they can then prepare themselves and create a strategy that, that, will lead to success in in their own business.
0: Well, I I have to admit, when I started to uh, read this book, I thought it was something that was geared towards large corporations and large businesses. But I I really think everyone could learn something from this, even if you want to be socially aware in a global sense. It's an absolutely great read. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Bernard Marr, author of the 25 Plus Trends that are Redefining Organisations. Bernard, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This week on the show, we have the chance for you to win a great prize with thanks to the National Apprenticeships Office. Apprenticeships are now available in almost every workplace right across Ireland from techs, to biopharma, construction, to engineering, manufacturing, hospitality and many, many more, providing an excellent pipeline of talent to drive business forward. As an employer, did you know that you can benefit from the Apprenticeship Employer Grant and the gender-based bursary across any of the 41 eligible apprenticeships? For more information, you can go to www.apprenticeships.ie. The prize is an Apple iPad Air 64 gigabit. Now, to be in with a chance of winning, simply tell us the answer to this question. Next Tuesday is the summer solstice. Is it A, the shortest day of the year or B, the longest day of the year? Text the word tech, your answer and your name to us now on 53106. That's 53106. Text cost 30 cent. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks taking stock. Coming up next, the UK government abandons key elements of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Does it all add up to a UK-EU trade war? Find out after the break. You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock. Now, this week, the European Commission began two new legal proceedings against the UK after London published plans to override some of the post Brexit rules governing Northern Irish trade. Does it mean that a trade war between the EU and the UK is on its way? Joining me now to discuss what it could mean for all of us here in Ireland is Dr. Martina Lawless from the ESRI. Martina, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. Martina,
0: Just to start us off, what exactly is a trade war and what motivates a country to invoke something like this?
1: Well, essentially, a trade war is when a country uses mechanisms to restrict trade, like tariffs or import bans or increased quotas on goods coming from a particular trading partner. Um, And sometimes that could be in reaction to sort of issues where they think that the trade is being diverted, if there's illegal subsidies going on, if they think there's some unfair comp- competitive practices coming from the other country, or alternatively, if they think that the issues agreed in a trade agreement aren't being adhered to. And that second is more the case in terms of the EU-UK dispute.
0: And it does give some countries political leverage to use those mechanisms, whether it's tariffs or quotas on imports. But this is unilateral action by the UK, Martina, and the subsequent response by the EU. Does it mean, in your view, that a trade war is now inevitable?
1: I don't think it is inevitable. The EU has responded very strongly um, to the publication of this new legislation by the UK government, but they haven't gone the whole distance in terms of reacting with tariffs or with trade restrictions, because it's important to remember this legislation hasn't yet been passed. So the EU is, I guess, marking the UK's cards that they're ready to react. They're ready to react strongly. And they have taken some actions in terms of areas where they think the protocol and the current agreement are not being fully implemented. But they're not going to respond at the level that you might label a trade war. at least until the legislation has actually been passed by the UK government, because that's not entirely a given.
0: All oh, right. So, so what is going to happen next, in your view?
1: Um, well, the, a number of sort of dispute resolution actions have been taken, legal actions have been taken on the EU side, where they feel that the current agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol, in terms of the data that's being collected and the level of checks that are being put in place, are not up to basically the standards that was agreed. Now, some of that dispute resolution uh, mechanism was launched a couple of months ago by the EU and then actually put on hold in order to facilitate further negotiations. Um, so this isn't the first time there has been a sort of a legal action taken by the EU in regards to the protocol, that one was basically put on ice yeah, in order so, to get talks back going again. So, so it's we, not impossible. We, the very optimistic view would be that the same could happen again.
0: Yes, yeah, so we've had this uh, uh, sort of um, tic tacking and stop starting by the UK and threatening by the EU, and this is maybe uh, at best uh, another one of those. But just let's talk about um, if it did escalate to a trade war. Um, A trade war is intended to give competitive advantage, but historically, Martina, do they work?
1: Well, the problem with the trade war is that it's very difficult to put increased restrictions on trade, particularly with a, a kind of a relatively important close trading partner, without also doing some economic damage to yourself. So if the EU decides they're going to put tariffs on goods coming in from the UK, that will damage UK producers because they will... Um, be less competitive in the EU market. But it also damages EU consumers and businesses who are faced with higher prices for the goods that they can't source other than from the UK. And that's particularly a concern for Ireland, perhaps, because we have one of the closer trading relationships with the UK. And
0: what type of products would they start off with? Um, I know that there has been an approach to to look at iconic products from a country. What, 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 What would they target in the first phase of a trade battle?
1: But I think this is one of the important elements, which is unlike when we were talking about a no-deal Brexit, where tariffs would be put on a whole raft of goods all at once. Um, In a trade war, it's probably much more likely that the tariffs would be targeted. And I think the EU would be careful to try and target places, goods where they thought the damage would be maximized on the UK business side and minimized on the EU consumer side. So I think they would be looking at products that maybe are not very large shares of consumer or business expenditure in the EU, but that would kind of be really noticed and felt on the UK side. And part of that is targeting products that are high profile or iconic. So there was a dispute between the EU and the US a number of years ago. And one of the products targeted was sort of high end motorbikes. So effectively, Harley Davidson's mm. very you know, iconic yeah. US um, product. So I would say in the case of, you know, what would they target in the, on the UK side? You might find products that are sort of closely aligned with. Uniquely British products, yeah. Um, Yeah, so Scotch whisky, for example, smoked salmon, goods that are kind of very obviously kind of British.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that, Martina. If Boris Johnson is using this as part of his tactic to speak to the Tory base about all of the evils of the EU, them targeting uniquely British product might be exactly... Uh, what would help him uh, in terms of painting, continuing to paint the EU as the nasty devils who are stymieing their their economic progress. But in the long run, Martina, do trade wars cost jobs? Does it uh, depress economic growth for the countries involved? And particularly at this time when inflation is so acute, not just in Europe, but across the world, is this exactly what the UK and Europe do not need at this time?
1: I think it's exactly what both sides will want to avoid. And certainly I think on the EU side, they will very much want to avoid doing damage to their own economy. And as I said, the, the issue with trade wars is even if you know, one side wins, in inverted commas, by forcing the other side to accept whatever terms and conditions the dispute is about, it's very hard to do that without putting some economic damage at least. On both sides, obviously, the extent to which that happens will depend on how high the tariffs go and how wide a range of products they impact. Um, in particular, just right at the moment, um, you know, inflation in both the EU and the UK are at you know, highs that we haven't seen in close to 40 years. So anything that increases the cost of even a relatively small range of products um, will be something that is just kind of layering on extra pressure onto households and businesses. So I think we'll see the EU in particular take it very slowly. I think they will want to sort of make their point to the UK and make it relatively strongly, but I would see it being a kind of a, a very gradual process and as I said, where the products initially targeted are ones where either EU consumers and businesses can find relatively easily available substitutes mm. um, or ones that are not large shares of expenditure, because it's really a very bad time for both economies to be putting any additional price increases um, in the place of consumers and and businesses.
0: Martina, are there any examples of historic trade wars that you could give us that either have worked or have gone spectacularly badly?
1: Um, Well, as I said, the the EU and the US did have a a kind of a long rumbling dispute over subsidies to aircraft manufacturers, which did Mm. bring in some some tariffs on both sides. Um, but it, it wasn't terribly high profile because it targeted a small number of products and it was negotiated, although it did take a, a number of years. Um, but you do see in really extreme conditions countries that kind of largely get um, shut out from international markets. But they tend to be kind of countries that are less engaged with the global marketplace, you know, it's sort of the former communist countries. Places like Iran, it's very, very unusual to see any high level trade dispute um, between sort of developed Western countries. Mm.
0: Um, and what what is your views on um, the U.S. China tech uh, trade war that's ongoing for the last number of years?
1: Um, I think that's another one where you, you see basically the the restrictions being you know subject to a lot of discussion. Um, mm in order to try and pressurize both economies to, or the Chinese economy in particular, to abide by various rules. But some reluctance to put on very high levels of tariffs or restrictions. Again, because the issue with trade wars is that the damage is often in both directions. So they tend to be escalated kind of very very gradually, except in quite extreme conditions.
0: And what for businesses here in Ireland, what could we look out for uh, in the months ahead if this trade war did commence, even on a small scale to, uh, you know, tackle or or uh, target uh, iconic brands? What what can Irish businesses do to protect themselves against it?
1: Well, it's a little difficult because until the kind of precise products would be identified. Um, as I said, there may well be some, a state where it, this gets ratcheted up so it's a little difficult unlike you know pre-brexit where we said like check your supply chain see what's coming yeah. from the uk because we had a good sense in advance of where the highest tariffs would be targeted because it was you know the wto listed um tariffs that were available it's a little bit more difficult there um and i think the broader issues of how high inflation is kind of across the board for businesses is probably likely to be a much higher priority than the risk of price increases on as i said likely initially a relatively small group of products coming from the from the uk
0: yeah because a lot of the um uh, the the um the the protocol which wasn't implemented yet or was to give businesses in Northern Ireland uh, space and time to sort of diversify their products so presumably that can still happen they can still look around and you know uh, as you say they make sure they're making the best of their supply chain.
1: Yes, for businesses in Northern Ireland I guess it's a little bit different because they know the areas Mm. where there are disputes in terms of the implementation of the protocol and it's largely around some supermarket grocery products um, and goods that have particular restrictions within the EU. And there the whole point of the initial grace periods um, was to allow firms the time to diversify and to look for alternative supply chains. So in that sense, for Northern Ireland businesses, there's still you know, time available for any products that look like they might be becoming restricted in terms of sourcing them in Great Britain um, to source them in the EU.
0: Well, certainly uh, there is a multiplicity of issues facing Irish businesses and Northern Irish businesses, not least your own report uh, this week, Martina, which highlighted the difficulties in terms of energy supply and energy security and energy poverty, which we, we might raise on another day. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Dr Martina Lawless from the ESRI. Martina, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, we'll be looking at what's been happening in Washington and I'll be talking to Kieran Stacey from the Financial Times about what's happening at the Congressional Committee hearings. Welcome back to Taking Stock. This is Mandy Johnston. Now we're going to turn stateside for a moment because a congressional committee is investigating the attack on the US Capitol on the 6th of January last year. It's finally now commenced a series of hearings. Many uh, are broadcast live in America. And it is, of course, the result of nine lawmakers who have interviewed more than a thousand people and incredibly have had to subpoena around 100 individuals, including some members of Congress. Joining me now from Washington to give us the story so far, and to tell us what it's all about is Kieran Stacey from the Financial Times. Kieran, you you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks for being with us today.
3: Thanks for having me, Mandy.
0: Now, so this committee has spent over 10 months now going through the events uh, leading up to and including the 6th of of January. It does paint a very bleak picture of what's been happening in the White House uh, and before those events took place. Before we get into that, can you just tell uh, our listeners about how the committee is structured and how the public hearings are, are being conducted?
3: Sure. So it's a committee, as you mentioned, of nine members of Congress. Uh, they're all in the House of Representatives, which is the the lower the lower chamber of the two here. Uh, there are seven uh, Democrats, and they did manage to get two Republicans mm. to sign on as well. Uh, no other Republican would agree to be part of it. Uh, one of the, the the more senior Republican in it is Liz Cheney. Name might be familiar to to your listeners. Obviously, the Cheney Cheney family has a long history within the Republican Party. Uh, She is Dick Cheney's daughter. Um, She is one of the people who's really taken a strong stand against Donald Trump, and she lost a leadership position within the party for doing so. So she's actually, in these public hearings that started last week, she's kind of taken quite a uh, a starring role and 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 you can tell when she speaks just how passionately she feels about this but yes there are nine members and we're going to have we think around six public hearings over the next few weeks uh, which aim to lay out not only what happened on january the 6th but also what role President Donald Trump played in those events.
0: Mm, and I suppose that's the big and significant question. Just looking at those two republicans and mentioning Liz Cheney there she's probably uh, as you say the most vociferous critic of Donald Trump and, and may actually lose lose her seat in the primaries as a result. But those two republicans on the panel um, both out of favor to put it mildly uh, with the Republican Party. It, will they use um it to discredit the the findings of the committee do you think the Republican Party?
3: At the moment, they're trying to ignore the whole thing. Mm. So the first public hearing was broadcast at 8 p.m. prime time on almost every major news network in the US. The one news network that didn't carry it was Fox News. And that was part of a deliberate strategy to try and pretend that this wasn't really happening at all. That. I think that approach by Trump and and the people around him has changed. Uh so Trump issued a lengthy statement after the second hearing condemning the whole thing as a witch hunt. They've now realized they can't completely ignore it that people are paying attention. So instead they're just saying it's uh it's a witch hunt and um you know they're, they're only calling people um for you know to give evidence who dislike the president or fallen out with the president. Um, I was talking to uh, a pollster earlier this week who said, actually, it might be a bit of a mistake by the committee only to call witnesses who have bad things to say about Trump, because that does help feed this narrative of this is a one-sided trial and Trump's not even, not even involved. Um, so at the moment, that is what they're saying. They're not really going after Liz Cheney herself particularly yet. They've kind of already done that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just painting the whole, uh, the whole hearing process as being fundamentally flawed
0: and is it getting traction with the public over there Um, and for you what were the standout moments that have happened so far
3: well so we've had two hearings so far uh the first one was really a made for tv laying out of what actually happened on january the 6th uh well what happened on on two nights a little bit on the election night and then on january the 6th and um Parts of it were very, very powerful. They did show a very well pieced together piece of video, Mm. which documented the riot, the storming of the US Congress on the afternoon of January the 6th in quite some detail with timestamps, Um, they'd spliced it together with audio from police officers who were there just to kind of give you a sense of exactly what was happening. So you found out, for example, at 2.39 that the Capitol Police officially declared this a riot. You found out about an hour later that the the front line of police had been completely pushed back and that they needed reinforcements. You heard their voices as they thought that their lives were in danger and they were being attacked. And then you also heard over the top, uh, quite cleverly, I think, the voice of Donald Trump, who was interviewed later on in last year, saying that this was such a great, loving occasion. The air was full of love, and these people were just out to show their appreciation for Trump. So they were able to paint quite a full picture, I think, of the events of that day. The difficulty they're going to have, so there's two audiences, really, for these hearings. Mm. One is the the US public. Now, the difficulty they have with the US public is a lot of people in the US have made their minds up already about what happened around Jeremy the 6th. So Republican voters, the majority of Republican voters do think the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Is this going to change their minds? I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, The majority, obviously, of Democratic voters don't believe that. Maybe this helps encourage more of them to go out and vote in November. We have big midterm elections coming up in November. Maybe this just gives Democrats a little reminder of what things used to be like before Joe Biden, gives them a bit more of an incentive to vote. Now, the second audience here is a man called Merrick Garland. He is the U.S. Attorney General, and it is up to him whether the U.S. decides to take criminal action against Donald Trump there are a couple of things that Merrick Garland could choose to prosecute Trump over one is involvement uh, in the actual riots themselves so either he could choose to argue that uh, Trump knew they were going to happen and uh, failed to do anything to stop them or perhaps that he even deliberately encouraged or helped organize them mm. that'll be a very difficult charge to make stick there's another charge here which is that in the days leading up to and, and after January the 6th Trump was trying to fundraise off the back of his claims that the election had been stolen and he set up something well he said that he'd set up something called the election defense fund and he collected in millions and millions of dollars for the election defense fund but actually in the end um, the committee showed that that money wasn't spent on any kind of litigation uh, surrounding the election, it, a lot of it actually flowed to Trump's close friends and allies. So there might be a a kind of um, an electoral campaign law violation there that Merrick Garland decides to prosecute. But so far, Garland, who is a, a relatively centrist politician, has really steered quite clear of prosecuting Trump. He hasn't ruled it out, mm. um, but he has not gone close to it. Um, and I think he is very reluctant to do so because if he chooses to do so and if a court knocks it down it will look terrible it will look like the democrats tried to launch uh, a politically motivated criminal prosecution of a former president and were wrong to do so so he really doesn't want to launch any half-baked prosecution he really doesn't want to to lose any case that he decides to bring
0: Mm. Yeah. And and that issue um, of of Trump just not accepting that he lost the election is the core of all of this. So are quite differing voices from within his own camp. I'm thinking of Rudy Rudy Giuliani on the one hand and then his former um, campaign manager talking about the team normal within uh, uh, the White House administration. Can you just talk to me about their differing uh, testimonies?
3: There was an amazing moment when Bill Stepien, the former Trump campaign manager, somebody who was very close to him, Mm. testified on video that he was proud to be part of Team Normal. And it seems that even those people who had defended Trump through everything, through his first impeachment, through the election, through all of the criticism he had received... This was the moment where half his team decided this is too much for us. Um, So Bill Stepian, the campaign manager talked about being on part of Team Normal. Um, We heard testimony from Jason Miller, who's been an incredibly staunch Trump Mm -hmm. ally, about how he was trying to tell the president that actually the election fraud claims weren't really stacking up. We heard lengthy, lengthy testimony from Bill Barr, Trump's attorney general. Now, Bill Barr was famous during the first impeachment for for really defending Trump and, and making sure he didn't get prosecuted for some of the things that came out of the Mueller report. Bill Barr, Said, called these claims. I won't use the full word, but BS. And uh, he went into huge detail about how many times he had told the president and those around him that these electoral fraud claims just were not true. So you did seem to have quite a few people around Trump, Team Normal, who were saying these fraud claims are not stacking up.
0: Yeah. What you Bill, had on Bill, the other hand, Bill Barr actually said he felt he become detached from reality.
3: Detached oh, from reality was yeah. the quote that Bill pa- Barr used. Yeah. Now, look, let's take some of this with a pinch of salt. Mm. Bill Barr didn't say this at the time. He did resign eventually, but in his resignation letter, he said none of this. Uh, he pr- lavished praise on Trump for all the things Trump had done in office. So who knows? Was he saying it quietly behind the scenes and now he's just saying it openly Um, was he actually not really saying everything behind the scenes, but now he wants to try and repair his reputation. We, We don't know the details of those private conversations, but certainly this is what he's telling us that he was saying. On the other side, you had Rudy Giuliani, and there was quite a depiction of Rudy Giuliani given during the second hearing. He was described as turning up drunk to the White House on election night and kind of insisting that the president go out there and claim victory while everybody else was telling Trump not to do so. Uh, this, the picture of Rudy Giuliani at times drunk, maybe not always uh, in his right senses, leading team abnormal, I guess we would have to call it. Um, people like Sidney Powell and this, this motley crew of lawyers that Trump assembled around him to make his claims of electoral fraud. Um, this is the moment where i think that team team crystallized and where trump really started listening to some of the more extreme voices around him
0: if you're just tuning in you're listening to kieran stacy from the financial times in washington kieran many commentators um are comparing these hearings to to watergate and how that brought nixon down but From this remove, just watching it from Ireland here, um, what I've seen so far makes Watergate look like a garden party compared to how close the US came to falling into complete and absolute chaos. Um, It is quite a difference, isn't it? It's not comparing like with like at all when you see the dysfunctionality that was happening behind the scenes.
3: Well, it's interesting, isn't it, what you get used to. Um, In a way, these hearings have felt less dramatic than Watergate Um, for a couple of reasons. One, Watergate was kind of the first of its kind. You know, the American public hadn't seen anything like this play out in front of them before. Um, But you're right. You know, the accusations that were being leveled against Nixon were nothing compared to literally trying to the accusation against Trump is that he was trying to overturn American democracy, that he was, in the words of members of his own party, this is what Liz Cheney said, trying to organize a coup against the American government. I mean, that's an astonishing thing for someone in your own party to accuse a president of. But I, the reason I don't think they're going to turn into war together, first of all, Trump's not in office. So mm. this isn't an impeachment. This isn't a public set of hearings of a sitting president. Second of all, for all these people who were saying they told Trump at the time that uh, yeah, that these claims weren't true, what we haven't had is anybody coming forward saying, oh, yeah, and the president said to me, he realizes they're not true, but he was going to carry on making them anyway. Mm. And, and I think it's that kind of evidence We've got so used to all the ways in which Trump acted. You need some evidence that he was being duplicitous here or that he didn't fully believe it himself. Um, Or perhaps that he colluded with the rioters, maybe that he was on the phone or one of his staff were on the phone with the rioters telling them where to go. You You need some huge piece of evidence here. For people not to go, oh well, that's what we always thought. Yeah, some
0: th- some smoking gun that that's that's finally exposed. Just to to look at it from Biden's perspective, do you get any sense um, that this could be of help to him in the opinion? You know, he's he's struggling in the opinion polls. Could this ultimately help him in his you know um, in the midterms? Say,
3: yeah, then that's definitely what the Democrats are hoping that this will help them in the midterms. It might do. Mm. Um, I mentioned earlier, I was having a a chat uh, with a guy called Frank Luntz, who's a well-known pollster here and in the UK. Actually, he does a lot of work in the UK. And he told me that uh, Democrats traditionally need three things to get them to the polls. If they've got three motivating factors, Democrats will turn out. He said, we're close to that because what we've got is um, these hearings into Donald Trump. So the reminder of Donald Trump in January the 6th. Abortion is now uh, a live issue again, with the Supreme Court expected to overturn Roe versus Wade in the coming weeks. And guns have become an issue after the mass shooting uh, in Uvalde a few weeks ago, Mm. uh, and, and talk again of more restrictive gun laws. Taken together, that might be enough just to make Democrats who were otherwise maybe fed up with Biden, maybe not so confident about the direction of the US economy, who might have stayed at home, maybe this will get them out to the polls. The early signs aren't great. The Democrats mm. lost a district in Texas last night, um, which you know I don't think uh, they would, well, certainly they wouldn't have wanted to. Um, the polls still are looking very bad for them. People are still far more concerned by the high US inflation numbers than they are by any other issue. So at the moment, I think it's, it's difficult to make that argument. But the Democrats don't have much going for them right now. They're looking for anything they can.
0: Cameron, who should we be looking out for as key future witnesses?
3: Well, the committee hasn't said yet who it's going to call in terms of live witnesses, but we do know who they've got video testimony from. I would expect that we'll see maybe more from Bill Barr. I would certainly expect we'll see more from uh, Trump's daughter Ivanka and her husband Jared Kushner. What we really want to see is any evidence, I think, of what was happening during a famous 187 minutes, Mm. during which Trump was apparently watching TV, watching the riot play out on live television and not doing anything to stop it. What was going on during that time? Can anybody who was in the room, can the Jason Millers, the Bill Stepians, who we know have been interviewed, can they tell us, was he on the phone to people? Was he trying to call people off? Was he just sitting back? And letting it all play out uh, was he or were his aides actually trying to incite this even further there was one intriguing moment during the first hearing a moment where people literally drew breath in the room because they couldn't quite believe what they had heard when one of the witnesses suggested that, uh, in fact, I think one of the committee members suggested that Trump may have expressed sympathy with the idea of hanging Mike Pence. Now, Mike Pence was his vice president, whom he believed was standing in the way of him winning the election. we're going to hear more about that, I'm sure. What did he say? You know, mm. what, Was he really calling for his vice president to be hanged by a, by a mob who was storming the capsule building? That's the kind of detail I think people are looking for now.
0: Yeah, I read some of the text exchanges between Mike Pence, Mike Pence's advisors, and his security detail, which are quite extraordinary. We're certainly watching out for them. But finally, Kieran, just to, to round this off, from your informed viewpoint, what does what we've already seen and heard tell us about the, the health of American democracy today?
3: I think it's worrying. I think what you have seen in the last few years is how easy it is to bypass American democratic institutions. And uh, things that nobody even considered before like for example this senate process of reading out Mm. the official results from each state nobody ever gave that the first bit of thought suddenly becomes a weak point in the democratic process the other thing i think democrats are particularly worried about is um there are attorney generals at each state and these are the people who have to sign off on the elections Mm. on the election results from those state now, Trump has been trying to get his own allies into exactly those positions. In some states, he's failed. In Georgia, he, he failed miserably. But in some states, he's succeeded. Now, there is a big concern here that if there's another close election, which Trump is a part of, will his allies who are there at state attorney general level, will they accept the results? Will they sign off on results that could see Trump not regain office. Um, that is of huge concern, I think, for, for anybody interested in American democracy.
0: Yeah. And as you say, the normalisation of political chaos is just something that we're, we're witnessing, not in, in America, but we're seeing it over here in, in the UK and Europe as well. And no doubt uh, there'll be cause to revisit this topic uh, when the report is concluded for now. That was Kieran Stacey from the Financial Times. Kieran, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Next week, I'll be talking to author Daniel Suskin about his book, The Future of Professions. And we'll be looking at if technology is about to replace high-paid human experts. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first on Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Thanks to all my guests today and to producer John Fardy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Next week, we'll let you know the winner of the Apple iPod Air competition with thanks to the National Apprenticeships Office. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for listening and enjoy the 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 rest of your day.